Last week, in the midst of all the snow, the sermon was on the Transfiguration. We learned how Peter, John, and James were taken to a mountaintop where they glimpsed Jesus glorified, talking with Moses and Elijah. And then God the Father descended in a cloud and told these three apostles to listen to Jesus. And the lessons that Jesus had been teaching them about his impending suffering and his death were still heavy on their minds, but this glimpse of Christ's glory encouraged them, and they knew God was in control no matter what happened. And they descended from the mountaintop with a renewed determination to follow and learn from Jesus. And soon after descending from the mountain, we read in Luke 9, 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus knows where his path is going, but he sets out resolutely. And he never returns to Galilee from this point on. And on the journey south, he teaches lessons of mercy, of forgiveness, and of service. And when he and his disciples get to Judea, Jesus continues to heal and teach as he was doing in Galilee. And he's con he continues to be quite popular and is drawing more and more attention from the Pharisees who are very carefully scrutinizing his words and his actions. And in the passage today, a Pharisee invites Jesus to dine with him. And today we're going to read about that in Luke eleven thirty-seven through 54. And if you'd stand as I read the passage, it's kind of a long passage. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, 
and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please open our hearts to the lessons contained within this passage. Help your spirit to speak clearly through me. Open people's hearts. Teach them the things you would have them to know. And use this passage to help us to become more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you remember, one of the first messages I gave was about Nicodemus, and we took some time then to talk about the Pharisees. These were the religious establishment of Jesus' time. These were the people in power. These were the holy people. And they tried to live completely righteous lives, and they did it by strict adherence to Jewish law, and not just to the Torah, but to the interpretations of the law found in the Jewish Midrash. And Jesus was becoming increasingly threatening to these Jewish leaders. If Jesus was the Messiah, he had greater authority than any of these people. But he challenged their interpretation of the law. He pointed out the hypocrisy of their behavior. And he refused to be tied to their traditions. So when he chased out the merchants from the temple, they began to wonder by what authority he did that. When he challenges their tradition and heals on the Sabbath, they begin to plot to destroy him. When he casts out demons, they accuse him of being in league with Beelzebub. And there's more. He talks with women. He spends time among Samaritans. He eats with tax collectors, and he draws sinners to him to hear him teach. Jesus threatens to upend their beliefs and upset their comfortable religious lives. And so here in Luke, we see a Pharisee invite him to dinner. And this invitation was probably not motivated by a chance to learn from Jesus. But it was another chance for them to try and find a cause to get rid of him. And immediately, Jesus does something to offend the Pharisees. And as we go through these today, we see seven marks of a Pharisee. And I'll try and highlight those as we do. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This isn't a hygienic thing. This wasn't Jesus being gross or anything. He doesn't wash. He, doesn't, he probably had clean hands. It has nothing to do with hygiene. This idea of washing was a ceremonial washing prescribed in the Jewish Madrash. And for these ceremonial washings, special stone vessels of water were kept because ordinary water might be unclean. And in performing the ceremonial washing, you had to take at least enough water to fill one and a half eggshells. And you started by pouring the water over your hand, starting at the finger and going to your wrist, and then cleaning your palms with the fist of your other hand, both hands, and then pouring the water from your wrist to your fingers. A really strict Jew would do this not only before the meal, but also between every course. 
And the rabbis were deadly serious about this washing. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. And is there really anything wrong with the ceremony? I mean, we, we pray blessings on our meals. I don't think it's the ceremony that was the problem. Here Jesus was using this as an example of the ceremonies of the Pharisees. He wanted the Pharisees to notice that he didn't wash. He had a point to make. And before we begin to judge these Pharisees harshly, we need to consider that sometimes we do the same thing. We Christians are really the religious establishment here in America. And sometimes we have ideas about how Christians should look and act that have nothing to do with God's standards, but everything to do with our own traditions and tastes. So this is not just a pharisaical problem, it's a human problem. And Luke knew this when he wrote. He didn't include this passage just to make the Pharisees look bad. It's here for us to learn from. Jesus sits down without washing to bring this to light. And once the Pharisee had noticed that he hadn't washed his hands, Jesus looks to him and says in verse 39, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. See, the focus of these Pharisees is all wrong. They're more interested in appearing holy than they are really being holy. The outside's clean, and that's what the people see and judge them by. And they're happy with that. They're happy feeling holy. But Jesus sees the grime inside, and God can too. Imagine a child took a cup of milk to his room and forgot all about it. Get knocked behind a dresser or under a bed, or it's left in the car too long. Eventually it starts to smell. Imagine the boy discovered it and there's mold and bacteria growing all over it. So the boy scrubs the outside of the cup and takes it out to the kitchen and says, look, it's all clean. But when we look inside, we see that it's not all clean. This is the picture Jesus is painting here. These Pharisees care a lot about the appearance of holiness, but they don't really get to the deep issues of the heart. It's possible for us to act holy, but Jesus really knows what's going on inside in our heart. And really, wouldn't a cup that's clean on the inside be much more useful than a cup that's just, that's just clean on the outside? Proverbs 16.2 says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So the first mark of a Pharisee is a Pharisee focuses on outside appearance and neglects the condition of the heart. And then Jesus starts addressing some of these heart issues. And he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Tithing garden herbs. That's pretty meticulous. Nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. 
He says you're focusing on the minutia and you're neglecting these massive issues of faith. John Corson tells a story of a 90-year-old woman in Fargo, North Dakota, who received an award for 82 years of faithful Sunday school attendance. At an interview, she described how sometimes it had been tough to attend. She had always made sure her work schedule did not conflict with Sunday morning. She even came when she was ill. She missed her son's wedding in another state so that she wouldn't be gone on Sunday. When her husband was ill and dying, she came to church. And when he, she returned home, he was dead. <laughs> she even came when the weather closed the church, and she'd wait in her car to see if anyone would come. Now, probably better if she had stayed home when she was sick or when the church was closed. It probably would have been better for her to miss a week and go to her son's wedding or to stay home with her dying husband. But she was so focused on these minor issues that she had missed the major ones. Why in the world would she do this? And why in the world did the Pharisees do this? They did it because they wanted to focus on something they could do instead of attempting to fulfill things they knew that they couldn't do. They feel holy because they've concentrated on all these tiny little things that they're able to do. And if they do that, they can ignore the gaps in their character that are more difficult to deal with. A New Testament scholar, William Hendrickson, said rigid insistence on trivial matters is very often a cover for inner sin. Rigid insistence on trivial matters is very often a cover for inner sin. And have you ever noticed that in the lives of others where they're dogmatic about insignificant things, there are often some huge voids in character? Have you ever noticed in your own life that sometimes you're more focused on the minutia? So the second mark of a Pharisee is a Pharisee focuses on minutia while neglecting massive realities of faith. And Jesus continues, Woe to you, Pharisees, in verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees loved to be seen. They loved to be recognized as holy. The best seats in the synagogue were the ones at the very front, and they faced the congregation. So we'd had a row of chairs here where you could look out at the congregation. And this was the best seat because everyone could see how well you're dressed, how holy you were. And they could look out at the congregation and take great comfort that they weren't like all these other sinners. And when they walk through the market, they like being greeted with special, special titles. See, when they're treated like they're better than other people and more godly than other people, it makes them feel good. They feel holy, even though they're not. So the third mark is to the Pharisees. A Pharisee craves the recognition of others over the substance of the character. To the Pharisee, it was no good to be walking right with God if everyone else didn't know you were walking right and that you were holy. And then he gives another woe in verse 44. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. We need to know a little bit about unmarked graves. In Numbers 19.16, 
Moses had told the people, anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. So if an Israelite walked over a grave, they were defiled. And the Jews took this seriously. They sought to mark graves very clearly, usually with whitewash, so that everyone would know where the graves were and know to avoid them. And the Pharisees even had gone on a campaign across Israel to mark graves so that they wouldn't accidentally walk across the grave and become ceremonial unclean. Ceremonially. Okay. Ceremonially unclean. And here is Jesus saying to them, you are like those unmarked graves. You are like those unmarked graves you're afraid of because you look holy, but you're dead on the inside. And everyone who comes in contact with you is contaminated by your sin. The Pharisees are very impressive. And people see them and they emulate them. They want to be like the Pharisees. But the Pharisees' holy facade hides the truth of their hearts. See, if we are corrupt, we are not capable of helping other people to holiness. If we're hypocrites, we're incapable of helping other people to holiness. We will produce corruption and hypocrisy. Matthew 7:18 says, "A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit." So the next mark of a Pharisee is a Pharisee will corrupt those around them just by their example. And then a scribe, a law expert interrupts Jesus. One of the experts in the law answered him and said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. If you have a brother or sister, you probably learned early on that when your brother or sister is being punished for something, you make yourself scarce. It's probably best not to draw attention to yourself when your parents are in that type of mood. And this expert of the law probably would have done better to stay silent, but he speaks up. You insult us also. And Jesus turns to him and starts addressing him. And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. These law experts and Pharisees were closely related. And the experts of the law interpreted the law, and they made religious demands that most people struggled to keep. And they did it so that when people failed to keep these, the Pharisees could feel holier than everyone else. And these interpretations of the law were not there to actually help people live holy lives. They used their authority to oppress people and make their lives harder. They taught things like on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his hands or across his chest or shoulders. But you could carry something on the back of your hand or on your feet or your elbow or your eye, or your hair. And on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot. Except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So therefore, if you needed to draw a bucket of water from a well, you didn't tie the rope to the bucket, you took a woman's girdle and tied it to the bucket. (laughs) And Christianity is not immune to this tendency. 
In early New England Puritan society, laws dictated dress and directed family relations. One law forbade the wearing of lace. The length of a wit's lady's sleeve, width of a lady's sleeve was decided by law. It was a penal offense for a man to wear long hair or smoke in the street. A man was not permitted to kiss his wife in public. One, one captain, a Captain Kimball, after a three years ocean voyage, dared to kiss his wife on his doorstep. And he spent two hours in the stocks for his lewd and unseemly behavior. Some of you may remember when a deck of playing cards would have been considered a sin to summon the church because cards are associated with gambling. We need to be very careful that we don't impose our own man-made rules on people. And we need to be cautious when people begin applying scripture on us in inventive ways. Scripture is not meant to be used this way. It's not meant to be used as a tool of control and oppression. Paul writes about freedom from human-imposed rules in Colossians 2, 16 through 22. And I invite you to turn there and read the entire passage. Today I'm just going to read verses 16 and 21. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. So the next mark of a Pharisee is a Pharisee burdens people with man-made rules of righteousness. And then Jesus continues to the next woe in verses 47 through 51. Woe to you! because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God, in his wisdom, said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. The law experts were very proud to claim the traditions of the prophets. But they don't follow those traditions. They continue to follow the traditions of their ancestors, who killed and persecuted the prophets. From Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z. They give lip service to the tradition of the prophets, but they miss the message. The message that Micah sums up in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And even with all the knowledge of the prophets available to them, and the many examples of how the prophets were killed and persecuted, these experts and these Pharisees were about to ignore it all and make the same mistake. They're about to kill the Messiah, the great prophet that Moses predicted. And Jesus says when they do, they'll be held responsible for all the deaths. 
because all those messages and examples in Scripture will have been in vain. So the next mark is a Pharisee is proud of their history and tradition, but ignores its message. And then Jesus moves to the final, most terrible woe. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Jesus says that the law experts are not only injuring themselves, they're hurting others. Instead of being helpful, their interpretations of the law have made it even harder for people to enter in and understand God's message. The Pharisees don't understand the depth of their own sin and their own need. And because of that, they aren't capable of helping other people to understand. So a Pharisee hinders God's message of sin and his plan for redemption. I'd like to conclude today by reading a chapter in Isaiah, and probably not the whole chapter, but Isaiah 59. And if you have that, I invite you to turn there. I'm going to read most of it. As I was preparing for this and reading through this, it seemed to parallel a lot of what we're discussing today. In Isaiah 59, 1 through 8, it talks about man's separation from God and his depravity and his empty schemes like the Pharisees to cover up their sin. Let me read starting with verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of the vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they did not know, for there is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. And as I read this, I realized how close to what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, Isaiah is stating here in verse, in Isaiah 59. So we see that man's solutions and his plans to bring us to God are empty and depraved. And Isaiah continues in verses 9 through 15. He tells us our true condition and our need. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. 
We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies in our hearts, our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. So here is the true condition of our heart that we cannot cover up. But then Isaiah tells us how God solved the problem himself in verse 16. He saw, God saw, that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. All these solutions to sin that the Pharisees present, ignore it, cover it up, foster a good reputation, follow ritual rules, and kill people to preach the truth. All of their solutions are leaving people with the same desperate need. The message of the Pharisees is hindering God's message of sin and his plan for redemption. So the fundamental problem of the Pharisees is this. They misunderstand our human predicament. They misunderstand the presence of sin, the gravity of sin, and the solution to the problem of sin. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. God has provide, provided through Jesus a way, the only way, that sinful humans can become righteous. The only way that we can deal with the sin in our hearts. Our faith in Jesus makes us righteous in God's eyes. Through his plan of salvation, God has given us his own righteousness. He gives it to anyone whose faith is in Jesus. And Paul explains this further as he pleads his case to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gives us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in Jesus, through Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. And not the false righteousness of these Pharisees or any human convention we might invent, 
but the very righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message to the Pharisees and to us. Help us to look at their example and to Jesus' words to them and to learn from it what we should not do as well as what we should do. Help us not to hold to human traditions. Help us to hold to your truth and to your light through Jesus. Help us have faith in Jesus Christ so that through his righteousness, we may all become righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.